Good morning. Today's reading comes from Revelation 21, which can be found on page 1,252 of the Church Bibles. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write, these da- write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they will be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 apostles of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the name of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square, as long as it is wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second, sapphire, the third, agate, the fourth, emerald, the fifth, onyx, the sixth, ruby, the seventh, chrysolite, the eighth, beryl, the ninth, topaz, the tenth, turquoise, the eleventh, jacinth, and the twelfth, amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, 
for the glory of God gives it light and the lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk in its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Thanks, Leah. Uh, didn't even flinch during the reading out those precious stones, beautifully done. Uh, good morning, everyone. My name is Cam Maxwell. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and uh, yeah, for a while, as Matt mentioned, uh, we've been going through Revelation for what feels like a quite a long time now. Uh, it's been pretty heavy going at points, pretty hard going at some points. Uh, but today, we finally get to Revelation 21. Uh, well done, we've made it. It's a, finally an uplifting passage, it's an exciting passage about our future. It's a brilliant future we've been uh, just hearing about. Uh, and it's good for us always to have a future to look forward to, isn't it? Uh, knowing our future uh, helps us live now. Uh, knowing our future helps us make decisions now. Uh, so, for instance, if we know there's a holiday coming up, well, we know we can work hard now. If we're going out for dinner later tonight, well, we know well, you're not going to make a sandwich at five o'clock in the afternoon when you get a bit peckish, you sort of ruin your dinner. Like, we know uh, there's a future that's in store. We don't want to fill up with average food now. Knowing the future means that we can delay gratification. Now, the other thing that we've sort of noticed that we've worked for Revelation is uh, warnings are another way that can kind of motivate us, I guess. Uh, we've seen plenty of warnings in Revelation, and warnings are good for us. Uh, they kind of help us avoid a bad future, don't they? Uh, so we can be motivated by warnings, but uh, we can also be motivated by promises. They help us get to a good future. So when you think about it, a warning and a promise are often sort of the two sides of the same coin. Both are about the future. Now, a few weeks ago, we heard about uh, a very severe warning, actually. In Revelation 18, we heard that Babylon will be destroyed. Uh, we, we talked about how Babylon really represents, it symbolizes uh, a code name for the world we live in. Babylon is a world we live in, a culture, a society that rejects God. Revelation 18 warned us with some pretty shocking imagery that uh, the world we live in, Babylon, Adelaide, it promises so much wealth and luxury and indulgence and enjoyment, but the warning was Babylon, Adelaide, will fall. Uh, the reason we were given is that God will bring judgment on a world that rejects Him. God will destroy Babylon. Uh, the warning in Revelation 18, uh, with that future in mind, the warning was, we'll leave Get out of Babylon. Don't get attached to Babylon. Don't get sucked into the things that were offered by the world, money, luxury, indulgence. Uh, the warning was, if our hearts are in Babylon, there is a great danger for us on the day that God's judgment comes. Now, that was the warning, and we, that was a couple of weeks ago now we talked about that, and you might have been thinking about that for the last couple of weeks, like, how do you leave Babylon? And you'll be finding, like we all do, it's really hard to leave Babylon. Babylon is very nice. There's plenty of lovely things, shiny things, tasty things. We're warned to leave, though. We're warned, don't get, don't get attached here. So how do you do that? Well, here in Revelation 21, we get to the other side of the coin, the promise. The promise of something better than Babylon. Chapter 21, I think, gives us clarity on why it's so good for us to leave Babylon. Because there's something better. 
uh, we're told that actually this new Jerusalem, uh, the place we're looking forward to, the future of God's people, the new Jerusalem, actually kind of makes Babylon look like a bit of a hovel. But as we're reading Revelation 21, uh, it could be that doesn't actually sound that great. I mean, uh, this is the place that we're told will dwell for all of eternity, but when you read Revelation 21, does this place sound that good? I mean, as you read this, do you think, oh yeah, this sounds better than Adelaide? Because let's be honest for a second, um, this is a big, shiny city, gold and jewels everywhere. Honestly, for me, that kind of sounds a bit gaudy, like a bit kitsch. It doesn't really attract me at all. It doesn't do it for me. And it just kind of sounds like someone gets a bit carried away with glitter at this point, and they're sort of bedazzling all their clothes and their jewellery. It's, it's a bit much. I don't even know what jasper is or you know, what uh, beryl or topaz are. I've got no idea. It doesn't really interest me. I don't want to find out, to be honest. And look, if rocks are your thing, shiny things are your thing, great. It's good. My point is, you read Revelation 21, and it's not necessarily immediately obvious that this is the sort of thing that should stir our hearts. Is Revelation 21 actually going to help us get out of Babylon? Well, like the rest of Revelation, it's, of course, it's loaded with symbolism. And John, we should cut him some slack as well. Like, he's trying to describe the indescribable, an eternal, glorious city. Like, how do you describe that? The way John describes it, by the way, is by using stacks, stacks and stacks of language from the Old Testament, images he's drawn from the promises of God. So as we read about this new Jerusalem, we're not reading about a literal golden city. The images John used, the language he ties together here, is all pointing us to what God's people have been longing for for centuries, for thousands of years. Revelation 21 is promising us a deep, a rich, a fulfilling, abiding relationship with God Almighty. That's the promise here. It's a fullness of relationship with our Creator. It seems to me that uh, most Australians, if you ask, you know, what happens in eternity, uh, Christian or not, most would say there's a sort of vague idea, you sort of spend eternity sort of wafting around on some clouds in a nice white robe, playing on some harps and singing forever and ever. Now, for some, uh, that's exciting. Uh, For most of us, though, doesn't really do it for me, does it? (laughs) The good news is uh, the Bible paints a far better picture of our eternity, for a start, uh, the Bible is very clear that we have resurrected bodies. Uh, we're physical. That's pretty cool. Uh, but also, as we see here especially, it's not like we go up there into the heavens somewhere. Eternity, it turns out, is here. It's on earth. Sort of. Uh, in, 21, in chapter 21, verse 1, John tells us he sees a new heaven and a new earth because the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The promise here is not that we sort of just leave earth and don't have to worry about it again. The promise here is everything gets renewed. See, when sin entered the world, back on page 2 of the Bible, sin entered the world when creatures rejected the Creator. And the consequence for doing something like that, the consequence is the universe that we live in now. It's, It's twisted, it's distorted, it's cursed... Uh, by the effects of sin. The promise here is it is all going to get fixed. The physical universe that we live in, it will all be made new. The curse will be removed. You might have noticed uh, in verse 1, what might seem like bad news for those who love the beach, the surface here today, apparently there will be no more sea. Uh, Now, 
maybe there won't be, but uh, again, I think this is symbolism, it's imagery. Uh, Throughout scriptures, the sea represents danger, chaos, destruction, and death. So whether or not there's a sea in this new creation is not the point. The point is, it's a place of peace and of safety. Apart from that, we're not really told many details, are we, about what it will be like to live there. Like, what will the new creation be like? Will oranges, will they they exist? Will they taste like oranges? Will they taste better? We've got no idea. Instead, the focus in this chapter is on the best thing of all about the new heavens and the new earth. The best thing of all on earth 2.0 is that God himself will be there. The idea that sort of uh, we go to heaven when we die, uh, it's kind of back to front. It's kind of back to front. Read here, read this and realize, actually, no, what will happen is that God will come from the heavens to the earth, dwelling with us, living with us. Now, that is a very good thing. It's literally the best thing. Have a look at verse 4. Look at what this means to have God with us. Verse 4, such a tender image. God himself will wipe every tear from their eyes. That is, in God's presence, there will be no more death, no more mourning or crying or pain. Those things belong to this world, the world we live in now. The new world where God himself is, it won't have any of that. It can't have any of that. Because God is life. In him there is perfect joy, perfect peace. And in a renewed world where God is, that is all there will be. Life, joy, peace. So, so far, hopefully you're thinking, oh, this sounds good, but you might be wondering, well, what's in it for God? What's in it for God? Like, surely, uh, He's God, He can do whatever He wants. Why would He want to come and hang out with us? Like, surely He's got some pretty cool things He could do with His time. Why us? I think this chapter gives us a pretty mind-blowing picture of God's longing for His people. Uh, We're at, really, at this point in the Bible, the end of the greatest love story of all time. Right back at the start, like the story of the Bible is, is a love story. It starts with uh, love that's rejected. A loving creator is rejected by humans who ignore him, who reject him, they disobey. God keeps loving them. Uh, the story of the Bible, in fact, the story of history, uh, is of God patiently chasing his rebellious people. God keeps wooing us back, he keeps winning our affections, he wins our hearts and our love. He keeps chasing, we keep running, because He loves us. And in fact, He keeps chasing us all the way to the cross. In this, this great love story, the cross is kind of the center point. It's there we see actually the, the depths of God's love for His people. But here, in Revelation 21, we get to the, the end of the love story, the happily ever after. Have a look at verse 2. Uh, in verse 2 we're told, the new Jerusalem is coming down from heaven. What does it look like? Well... Prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. We see the same thing later in verses 9 and 10 as well. We're told a city that looks dressed like a bride. Now, you kind of have to do some mental gymnastics there to kind of uh, visualize that mixed metaphor. Uh, but I think the point is pretty clear. Uh, the New Jerusalem, where God's people are, God looks at us, his people, Uh, In the same way, I guess, that the groom watches his bride walk down the aisle towards him. He looks at us and he thinks we're beautiful. 
That's a bit strange, I think, for many of us, especially perhaps the guys who've never imagined yourself as a beautiful bride. I don't tend to think about that much, very much myself, but uh, you get the power of the image here, don't you? The power of the image. God adores us. He adores us. He longs for a relationship with us. Uh, but let me be clear about this, uh, because uh, we've seen quite clearly in Revelation, it's not actually because we're adorable that God adores us. And actually, far, far the opposite is the point in Revelation. God loves us, and it's only by the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Himself, it's only by the blood of the Lamb that we're washed, that we're made clean, that we're presentable, uh, that in God's sight we become beautiful. God doesn't adore us because of the good things we do, or how clever we are, or how we look, or anything like that. It's only the blood of Jesus that takes away the curse of sin, and that's what restores our relationship with Him. It's only trusting in Jesus, uh, trusting in His blood, that actually gives us access to the new earth. So, we can't skip over uh, this warning in verse 8. In such a positive chapter, we still have a very severe warning about the second death for those who are cowardly, unbelieving, Vile, murderers, sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, idolaters and liars. Now, this warning here is, is about remaining unrepentant. That is, the list describes people who haven't turned to Jesus, who haven't gone to Him for forgiveness. Verse 8 isn't telling us that if you've ever told a lie, well, that's it. If that's what it was saying, well, eternity would be a very lonely experience for Jesus. The point Revelation keeps making is that Jesus is our only hope. We all need forgiveness. You look at that list, a number of those things will strike us as things we know we are guilty of. But the promise of Scripture is that Jesus forgives us of all those things. It's Jesus and Jesus alone who makes us safe from the second death. If you're here today, sort of uh, new to these things, or checking us out, or checking out Jesus, uh, really big welcome to you. It's great you're here. It's great you're uh, with us. We hope you have a, a yeah, a encouraging morning thinking about these promises we have before us. But as we sort of get to verse eight, uh, please know that we all find these kind of warnings pretty uncomfortable. Uh, but the point is not to make us uncomfortable or to scare us. The point of verse eight is to warn us is to warn us that these claims are worth considering very carefully. It's worth thinking carefully, how does the judge of the universe see my life? Can forgiveness really only be found in Jesus? They're good questions, crucial questions, if heaven and hell lie in the balance. And we love to uh, keep working through these things. If you have questions, we'd love to chat to you. Please just let us know you'd like to explore uh, these things more. There's a little tear-off slip on the leaflet. You can hand that in later if you'd like to. See, God wants all of us there. He longs for us. The question this morning is, well, do we long for Him, for our Heavenly Father? In verse 6, at the end of verse 6, there's a great promise. To the thirsty I will give water without cost, from the spring of the water of life. Now, I gather that's not just a promise about not having a dry mouth. The spring of the water of life, that's, I think, what God Himself offers, life. 
This, this refreshment that comes from knowing him deeply, enjoying him. It's what it means to be truly alive. But who is this satisfying refreshment for? Well, it's for the thirsty. It's for those who long for him. To put it this way, it's for those who are unsatisfied without him. For those who are uncomfortable living in Babylon. See, a shiny city, uh, as we have described in Revelation 21, doesn't necessarily grab our hearts. But the point of this chapter is not the city. It's that God himself lives there. It's a city that's fitting to, to represent his great glory. So the question for us is, having hearts that long for God, having a thirst to be with him, because there is no greater promise. Are we thirsty for those true living waters? Do we desire a rich relationship with our Heavenly Father? If we're not, I suspect this kind of promise of eternity, uh, eternity with God, it might not stir us a great deal. That is, if we hear these things and a bit indifferent, well, it could be actually that we have a view of God that is too small. It might be that we're already actually drinking water, but from the waters of Babylon, seeking satisfaction here and now. Now, pretty big question. We'll come back to that in a moment. Uh, Because we need to check out first uh, why the New Jerusalem is better than Babylon. We get a lot of details from verse 9 onwards about a city that is a bride marrying a lamb. Like It's kind of like metaphor soup at this point. Just mix them all in, stir them around. Uh, it's kind of yeah, pretty hard to mentally grasp all this at once. So let's walk through a little bit. Uh, and bearing in mind, really, the city and the bride are different ways of just speaking about the people of God. People of God, that's what's on view here. Uh, so in verse 10, we're told this city, the people of God, are coming down from heaven. Uh, I think this is to remind us, really, that we cannot build heaven on earth. Utopia, we can't get there. The earth, everything in it, all of us, are too damaged by the effects of sin. We can build impressive cities, yes, but we'll never even come close to building heaven on earth. Uh, We need God himself to step in, to fix everything. And here we're seeing he will. Verse 11, we're told the new Jerusalem shines with the glory of God. The glory of God. Now, how do you describe the glory of God? This kind of radiance of himself, his, his shininess as his internal qualities become visible... In the Bible, uh, when God is present somewhere, uh, His glory is always overwhelming. Even when there's a, a tiny hint of His glory, His kind of radiance of His being, people fall down. It's, it's too much. People hide their faces. He's too good. He's awesome. This city, I guess the, the description of all the gold, the dazzling uh, jewels, I think this is John's best go at describing Uh, how brilliant this place is if it's where God dwells. It's fit for His presence. So let's take a quick tour of the city. Uh, Starting at verse 12, we see there it's got 12 gates, uh, named after the 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, Jump down to verse 14, it has 12 foundations, named after the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Uh, It seems to be uh, that this is a place for all of God's people. Uh, His old covenants, uh, the people of Israel, uh, under the new covenant, the church. Uh, That's who this city is for. The good news is, there's plenty of room. Uh, There's a lot of people God intends to have with Him uh, on the new earth. 
Uh, look how big this city is. Verse 15, the angel measuring the city out, he's given a, a little stick, a measuring rod, and off he goes. Uh, verse 16, he measures it. It's a square city, 12,000 stadia long. Uh, if you check the footnotes, that's about 2,200 kilometers. So 12,000 stadia long, 12,000 stadia wide. Um, now, how far is 12,000 stadia? 2,000 kilometers. It's a very long way. Uh, it's about, say, here to Perth, roughly. Uh, now, that's the size of a city, one side of the city from here to Perth. That's a big city. The weirdest thing, though, is that it's 2,002 kilometers high. This poor angel, uh, as far as I can make out, he's walked around with a stick measuring out 6,600 kilometers. <laughs> poor guy. And John, you know, if this is a literal city that's being measured out in front of me, he'd be there for months waiting, watching this angel. Just Anyway, uh, clearly, it's not a physical city that's being measured. Because it's 2,000 meters, 2,000 kilometers, sorry, 2,000 kilometers high. Think about that for a moment. Just try and picture something that's 2,000 kilometers high. Um, the world's tallest building is only about 800 meters high. You know, only. It's pretty big. Uh, Mount Everest, about eight kilometers high. Eight kilometers, it's very big. Uh, the far reaches of our atmosphere, about 400 kilometers. This city is 2,000 kilometers high. It's knocking satellites out of space. It's massive. Who wants to live in the penthouse suite in that city? I think the elevator would take a few months to get you, get you home. The point is, it's clearly not a literal city, is it? It's not a literal city uh, that God's going to sort of plonk down on earth one day, uh, creating sort of a gravitational wobble or something like that. I, now, if it is a physical literal city, that would be hilarious to find that out. It would be great to be wrong on that one. But what's with this massive, massive cube? Like, what's, what's being communicated uh, in this image? Uh, well, in Revelation so far, we've seen that numbers tend to have a symbolic function, uh, more so than a literal one. Uh, Twelve, we've seen a number of times, a number of fullness. So 12,000, it's a really big, really full number, a complete number. Uh, the other thing is that this cube, I reckon, should make us think of the most famous cube in the Bible. That's okay if you don't know what that is. Uh, the most famous cube in the Bible is the inner sanctuary of Solomon's temple. So Solomon builds a temple for the Lord, uh, and in the temple there is the Holy of Holies, the sanctuary. Uh, it's, uh, it's a cube. It's a cube. It's about three meters by three meters by three meters, kind of like the size of a small bedroom, uh, which, by the way, uh, Solomon uh, overlays with gold all around, like uh, the, the temple, sorry, not his bedroom, although Solomon's probably hard to know. Um, now, the Holy of Holies, the Holy of Holies is a place where once a year, one priest could enter into the actual sort of presence of God. One guy, once a year. Very limited access, isn't it? Now, put that together with something else I learned this week. In John's day, uh, the known world, the extent of the known world, was about 12,000 stadia, give or take. Um, that was kind of roughly the size of the Roman Empire. I think what's going on here is they're being told that the presence of God will be unlimited, in John's understanding, he's been told it's going to fill the entire earth. This, this tiny sanctuary, once about a three-meter cube, where there was one person accessing God's presence, well, now, in the new creations, it's the entire world. Anyone can access God. I take it that's why it's called the New Jerusalem. Uh, throughout the storyline of the Bible, Jerusalem represents God's presence. It represents His rule and His blessing. Uh, Jerusalem is the focal point of all the earth. Uh, it was the focal point set aside specially for worship, 
for rejoicing, for, for meeting with God. Because Jerusalem is where God's king ruled. It's where God's temple is. His presence was known. The thing about Jerusalem, though, is it got destroyed. Uh, God's people kept rejecting him. Uh, they rejected his rule. They didn't worship him as they should. So uh, 586 BC, Jerusalem was destroyed uh, in the first time. 586 BC. One of the most significant events in the Bible. Think about being an Israelite, living through the destruction of Jerusalem, the temple. Like, what does that mean? Is God still with us? Does he still love us? Well, the prophets, a huge chunk of the Bible, the prophets are reflecting on those questions. Does God love us? Is there a future for us? Is there a future for Jerusalem? The answer is, yes, God still loves us. And yes, there is an amazing future for Jerusalem. If you're looking for something to read after our Revelation series, I suggest reading Isaiah. Uh, You might like to pick it up from Isaiah chapter 50 or thereabouts. Uh, I say that because the connections you'll see in Isaiah, like you'll see so much, all land in Revelation 21. See, Isaiah, he he prophesied that Jerusalem would be rebuilt and it would be more glorious, far more glorious than anyone had ever seen, than anyone could imagine. Isaiah told us God himself would build it with jewels and precious stones. How about that? Isaiah writes that the nations would pour into Jerusalem to worship and to bring glory and honour to God. Isaiah tells us that the gates of Jerusalem would always be open because it's perfectly safe. There's some pretty outrageous promises Isaiah makes. So we get to Revelation 21, we say, ah, this is where God's promises all get fulfilled. In fact, they get exceeded. Revelation 21, we get this big, shiny new Jerusalem. I think we're seeing God's promises being represented. Jerusalem represents all of God's promises. Rich blessings, rest, no more tears, abundant life, living water, peace, security, so on, so on, so on. This chapter reminds us, actually, that God is not finished. He will keep His promises, His many promises, but we have assurance of that. We have, in Christ now, we have all those assurances that God is keeping His promises. Christ fulfills the promises of God. But what we see now is they are still yet to be completely fulfilled, fully realized. Perhaps the last few verses from verse 22, I think is where this chapter all, holds to, all comes together. What do each of us long for? Like, what do humans need? What do we chase after? There's quite a few different ways you could answer that question, but I think a fair way to sum up uh, what we need uh, is satisfaction, security, and significance. Satisfaction, security, significance. Uh, I think these are the things that ultimately we chase. They're the things we desire. I think these are the things that motivate us. Satisfaction, security, significance. I reckon that's why we have a hard time living in Babylon. Babylon offers satisfaction. It offers security. It offers significance, satisfaction in our work, in our family life, in holidays, and all the good things we can squeeze out of this life. Babylon offers security in our our superannuation, our investments, our safe houses, job security. Our education gives us security for the future. Significance, well, Babylon teaches us to live in such a way that people will honour us, they will respect us. We get social credit for doing things that are good. See, Babylon offers all these things, and yet 
we know, don't we, that they never really satisfy our thirst. We never feel truly satisfied in Babylon. We never feel truly safe. And significance, well, we continually yearn for more recognition, for a more intimate relationship. Uh, the great Christian author, uh, some of you will know of C.S. Lewis, uh, as a, a quote from him I'll have up on the screen here, thanks Tom. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote, The fact that our heart yearns for something earth can't supply is proof that heaven must be our home. Now, if by heaven he means uh, where God is, well, he's spot on, isn't he? Verse 22 uh, begins with John saying that he did not see a temple in the city. the The city does have a temple, it's just not a temple building. Rather, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Now, you think about what this means. A temple... Uh, sure, you can go there to meet with God and uh, access His presence in a very limited way, but a temple also represents barriers. There are barriers between the worshipper and the Lord. But here, we're told there's no more walls, no more curtains, no more distance, and of course, no sin. So there is instant access for every worshipper. Can you even imagine what that would be like? Uh, to be able to worship God truly, how much joy there would be to be able to worship as we're designed to, without barriers between us and God, without things distracting us and our attention, and perhaps most of all, with, without our sinful heart. Being able to give ourselves completely to Him, enjoy Him, seeing Him, seeing the Lamb who was slain for us, right there with us. Wouldn't that be amazing? Because that is the answer, isn't it, to our deepest needs. That's where we thirst. We were made to worship. We were made to enjoy and delight in our God. It's just that at the moment, we're pretty bad at it most of the time. Our minds are distracted, our our hearts are hard. And our minds just can't grasp just how big and how good God is. The promise here is that we will finally be satisfied as we finally worship in truth. Finally, the creature will enjoy and know fully as we relate with our Heavenly Father. I think that's what it's meant by drinking deeply from the springs of the water of life. You'll notice the description of the city is one of security. Uh, The walls of the city are impressive, like they're big walls, But actually, you would have also noticed that what's the point of walls? Because you leave the doors open all the time. The gates are open because God's there. There's nothing to fear in God's city. No nighttime. I think the point there is there's nothing lurking about, no unknowns that we need to fear. You certainly don't need to worry about financial security. I mean, the streets are made of gold. Who needs a bank account? How about significance? Well, not only are God's people treated like royalty, like children of the eternal King, we're also in the presence of the Lamb. We get to see Jesus, who loved us, who loved us so much, He died for us. Now, if that doesn't give us our true significance, I'm not sure what does. The promise here in this chapter is that our deepest longings will be met, not here in Babylon, but in the new creation.
satisfaction, security, significance. The strange thing about Revelation 21 is that a chapter that's really supposed to be capturing our hearts and making us long for this day, the curious thing is we're hardly told anything about us. Do you notice that? We're not really told what we're going to be doing at all. Like, it could have been very easy for God to excite me about this day, just tell me, you know, there's free beer and ice cream mountains and I'd be pretty excited, look forward to it. But it might not help me live today. I think this chapter is brilliant because the focus is not on us and the things that are kind of like in Babylon. The promise of the future is far better. It's that we will be with God for all eternity. That is supposed to be, and I think it is, the biggest, best promise of all time. God with us. The promise that helps us live now, I think, is that God will be with us. The question is, does it grab our hearts? That's the best promise, but does it grab our hearts? Does it help us live now? Does the idea of worshipping God, seeing the Lamb, does it excite us? Does it move us? Or as you're sort of listening to this, he's reading Revelation 21, it kind of just maybe sounds a bit bland. You know, eternity with God, oh, great. If that's the case, is it possible that our hearts are, are worshipping or are longing for the wrong things? Or perhaps we just, we don't really know God well enough. We might have lost how good He is or just don't know yet the extent of who He is and how good He is. Or perhaps, if this is bland for us, it's maybe because we really only hope for a future that's like now, but just a little bit better. If we're a bit indifferent about spending an eternity with the glorious, almighty God, it would seem we have misplaced or lost our thirst. Or to put it another way, that maybe Babylon is scratching where we itch. If that's the case, if we're finding satisfaction in Babylon, we, we do need to come out of Babylon, he, heed those warnings. Like it is hard, but we need to keep working at refusing to find our satisfaction here, our security here, our significance here. But today, perhaps the more important thing to do is to keep cultivating our hearts, to long for true satisfaction, to keep working on hearts that are not satisfied in this world, Hearts that itch, that, that ache to know God more. Hearts that long to hear His voice, to see His face, longing for the day when we get to see Jesus. Now, how do we do that? How do we work on our hearts? Well, let me give you two options, and I'll get you to see which one is better. The first option is, we could do all the right things in Christian life. We come to church regularly, get involved here. We could be on ministry teams, leading ministry teams. We take notes during sermons, uh, good thing to do. We could read great books uh, that will stretch our doctrine, our understanding of who God is and what He's done in history. We can read the Bible carefully for ourselves. We can pray diligently. We can join a community group, go regularly. We can give money away to church and mission. We can do all those good things and far more, but out of a sense of guilt or out of a sense of duty. Or maybe just that's our habit now. We've been doing it for so long. There's a second option. There's a second option. We do those same things, but instead of duty or habit, we start with relationship. We do those things to help our hearts long for, to grow in our relationship with our Heavenly Father. So if we 
at any point in our lives lose the preciousness of a relationship with a heavenly father, I think it's then our hearts stop longing for him. We do all the things, but relationship is no longer the thing that drives us. When it does, in those moments of our life when we desire a relationship with God and want to know him better, well, we read the Bible because we're desperate to hear his voice, to, to hear from him, know what he's saying to us. We pick up good books and we read because we really want to know who this God is that we're going to spend eternity with. We want to know what he's like. We want to understand how good he is. We're driven to pray because we know he's a good Heavenly Father. He loves us. He wants to bless us. We're driven to pray because we don't want to be sinful anymore. And then we get involved in all the things at church. We, we give, we serve, we go along to community groups. We do those things when it's hard. We do those things when it's inconvenient, when we're tired, when it's costly. We do those things not because they satisfy our needs. Instead, we do those things because they make our hearts itchy. They make us long and ache for that time we promise with God where we'll see Him face to face. As we spend time with God's people, we get to reflect on His majesty. We talk about His goodness. We work together to make His name great, spurring each other on. We do that because we want this relationship to be the thing we thirst for the most. Knowing that our Heavenly Father is, is waiting for that eternity with us, He's leading us onto that day, it helps us live now, doesn't it? It helps us live radically now, I think. But I know that's far easier said than done. And so, would you join me in prayer that God might help us? Heavenly Father, we, we do thank you so much uh, for uh, your desire to be with your people. Thank you for the many rich promises we have all through your word, especially for the promise that you will be with us, that you will be our God and that we will be your people. Father, we ask that you'd help each of us grow, uh, grow a longing for the day uh, where we'll be able to worship you without barrier, without distraction, without sin. Long for the day when we can enjoy you as we're designed to. Uh, Lord God, please, in your goodness, give each of us uh, just glimpses of your glory regularly. Remind us of your goodness so that we do live now, uh, not as citizens of Babylon, but as citizens of the new Jerusalem. Lord Jesus, please speak the day when you will make all things new and when we will see you. We pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.